Greetings and welcome back to Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have one of my favorite and most interesting topics. We're going to be discussing Taoism, Zhuangzi, and the Way. The Taoists are people that uh, most people outside of Asia are already familiar with. Uh, for longest time, and even sometimes today, you'll see the word Taoist spelled with a T. Uh, so it oftentimes gets pronounced Taoists. Um, this is a, mis- a mispronunciation based on the romanization scheme, which you'll see with uh, tofu as well. Uh, the word for tofu originally is supposed to be, in Chinese, pronounced with the D, uh, dofu. Uh, but because it gets written with a T in the old system, most people pronounce it as tofu, and that's entered the mainstream. The same thing happens with the Taoists, who are actually the Taoists. All right. Um, who are the Taoists? The Taoists are famous for being the guys who want to purposely disorient you, all right? They're looking to shake the foundations of everything that you hold dear in hopes of improving your state of mind and your ability to cope with the world that we live in, all right? They want to rock your mind, but they want to do it for a higher good. Now, at the very outset, I should emphasize that what we're talking about here today is what we should refer to as philosophical Taoism. Because there is another sort of Taoism, uh, which we might uh, call practical or pragmatic Taoism. Okay, philosophical Taoism are the educated elites who talk about big ideas. All right, and part, much of what philosophical Taoism is trying to do is to disrupt the bases of knowledge and our reference points that educated elites subscribe to, okay? Pragmatic Taoism is something that people from all walks of life, all economic classes, okay, from the emperor all the way down to the illiterate peasant, engage in, in hopes of obtaining uh, immediate material benefits in both this life and the afterlife. And we'll have the occasion to talk a little bit more about what pragmatic Taoism looks like when we get to our episode on religion. But basically, pragmatic Taoism is what we think of in the West as alchemy. All right, the mixing of potions, the manipulation of natural minerals and resources to create something that human beings can ingest and thereby attain either better health in this life or immortality in the afterlife. All right, these are the guys who are responsible for several emperors. Who knows how many emperors, but many emperors uh, meeting premature and fairly grisly ends when they ingest mercury All right, or certain types of metals in liquid form that were never meant to be ingested by human beings, but it was believed that this is something that might help you attain immortality. Or the Taoists would come up with potions that would help a man be more viral in bed. Okay? Um, you know, that's more pragmatic Taoism, trying to harness natural resources um, in a pre-scientific age uh, to achieve bodily Benefits, crude bodily benefits in the here and now, and then also for usually for the upper classes, uh, you know, the emperors and whatnot, uh, perhaps immortality after you die. Okay, but today we're going to talk about philosophical Taoism. Philosophical Taoism is what's going to get into the books, the knowledge that will be perpetuated among educated, respectable elite classes for 2,500 years. Okay, now before we get to Taoism, we need to recap very briefly how we got to where we are. All right, our time frame today is, you know, again, the middle of the first millennium BC, 500 to 300 BC or so is when these ideas are germinating, evolving, and ultimately being put down for the first time on bamboo slips in writing and silk and passed down from generation to generation until they'll finally take their more fixed, permanent form during the Han Dynasty on paper. And, that, and those are the forms that we often rely on today. Okay, but how did we get to the point where we're going to be talking about Taoists who deliberately 
want to mess up your reference points and make you disoriented. And they say, this is for your own good. All right. All right. Let's recap the evolution of ideology in the Huaxia culture, culture sphere to date that we've already covered. All right. We began with the Zhou dynasty, Z-H-O-U, the Zhou dynasty, the first major attested bureaucratic ideological state from about a thousand to 700 BC is when it's flourishing. Okay. And we got from the Zhou, we got the mandate of heaven. Now that was revolutionary for its time because it presented the first narrative of how things came to be. In their case, how the Zhou came to be in power and why they deserve to be in power. Okay. But what you didn't see with the mandate of heaven is you didn't see a narrative of how things came to be presented through logic. You saw it presented through myth-making. All right, the myths about the virtue of the Joe rulers and how great they were. Okay? And then they prevail on the battlefield and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's no logic in the mandate of heaven. Okay? Then we get Confucius and the Analects in the 6th and the 5th century BC. Okay, and Confucius is going to be one of the first people who tries to present a program for all, how all human beings should interact with one another. I remember when he talked about Confucius and then to a greater extent Moltze, we were talking about the first people who start to address the people in, you know, in general. Remember the Shang Dynasty, you had enslaved labor and human sacrifice, and the people are only referred to in relation to the services they can provide for the elites and how they can be exploited. All right, Confucius is going to be talking about for the first time um, you know, how all humans can come together to create a harmonious society. And his emphasis was on filial piety. That's how the pyramid structure of society should be, should be, should be uh, governed. From every single little village household all the way up, filial piety, you are partial towards your individual family and your elders and those in authority. And he emphasized the role of rites and rituals in sort of providing the glue that human beings need to know how to interact with one another. But what we still don't see with Confucius, we see a broadening of the discourse to start talking about everyone in society and how people can transform themselves to create the ideal society, mostly the gentlemen, the educated elites. Uh, but we still don't see a whole lot of logic, or any logic. And we still don't have a consistent narrative, really. All right, I, I, I characterize the Analects as sort of uh, a big grab bag of fortune cookie uh, slips. Okay, you can easily find many passages in there where you say, here's one sentence, and then you look at the next sentence, and it doesn't seem to have any direct connection to the sentence before it. There's no narrative continuity. Okay, um, if it wasn't for Mencius, several hundred years later, uh, Confucius would not have had the narrative flesh, the meat and bones, uh, that would have sustained attention in his teachings for as long as they have been sustained. Mencius is going to do that. Okay? Now, after Confucius, we got into Moltze. And Moltze made the effort to attack Confucius, to combat his ideas. He wanted to replace filial piety with what he referred to as impartial caring, or universal love. Okay? And he starts to prove how superior his idea of, of impartial caring is over filial piety through logic. This is what I like to think of as a rhetorical arms race. He's upping the ante of how to make a greater impact on your audience so that they believe that your ideas are superior to someone else's. Moltze basically invents logic, or at least he's the first one who we can attest to on, in written records as using logic to ram home his point and say, this is why, at the end of the day, I am the clear victor 
over Confucius. Impartial caring in Wolze beats Confucius in filial piety because I proved it through logic. Remember, a, a little bit of black is black. You agree with that, right? Okay, I got you on. You know, that's an empirical fact. A little bit of black is black. So, a little bit, of, uh, a lot of black is suddenly white? No, you can't say that. A lot of black is a lot of black. You have to go along with Moltze in his logic. He's got you trapped. And he uses that analogy then to say, uh, you know, a little bit of homicide is homicide and is punished. But a lot of homicide is suddenly not homicide. It's justified punishment of, a for, uh, of, of, of a, an, another state, well, i.e. war. He says, no, that's also a lot of homicide and should be punished. And yet at the same time, while he's using logic to prove his point for the first time ever, we also see that Moltze is the first hypocrite. Because although he's using logic to prove his point, he, is now, he has now created rules that bind him as well. And you can pin Moltze down in his internal contradictions. You can see where he doesn't make sense. And he contradicts himself. Right? He says... He basically says that war is never okay, and a lot of black is still a lot of black, and a lot of murder is a lot of murder, and it's immoral. But then he himself comes up with these ways that, to justify war by saying, oh, war is still okay as long as it's punishment and you interpret the signs from heaven. Well, give me a break, okay? He's still just trying to find a way to please a ruler and say, if you hire me, you can still go to war. I'll just package your war so it looks like it's benevolent and justified and it's not really war. This is why I said no one has ever waged an offensive, immoral war in the history of humankind if you listen to the justifications put forth by those who go to war. They always find a way to whitewash the selfish, immoral motives behind war. So Moltze invents logic, and as he does so, he becomes the first hypocrite also. Confucius, you can't call Confucius a hypocrite because he didn't set a systematic internal standard of logic and narrative. Confucius is like a wet watermelon. You try to pick it up, it slips right out of your hand. He's a fish. Ever try to pick up a fish? That's Confucius. He's a fish. You can't pick it up. You can't pin him down. He'll slip right out of your hands. Because there isn't consistent logic or narrative in Confucius. So good luck trying to pin Confucius down and trap him in contradictions. It won't work. Moltze, you can do that too. Now, in the next episode, we're going to get into Mencius. And we're going to see how Mencius then plagiarized, or to be more kind, borrowed and adapted, Moltze's logic and then applied it to Confucius's ideas. Mencius is Confucius plus logic plus narrative. That's exactly, that's what Mencius is. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. For this episode, we're going to get the Taoists also taking a cue from Moltze. And the Taoist, Zhuangzi being the most famous among the Tao, the Tao, the uh, Taoists, Taoist, um, Zhuangzi is going to use logic to prove the illogicality of logic. Okay, going to get a lot of oxymorons here, okay? Things that don't appear to make sense on the surface, and that's intentional. And Zhuangzi is basically going to say, hey, once we prove the illogicality of logic, that will free you from the man-made prison of our minds that we create for ourselves. We create a rhetorical prison in our perception of the world we live in. And if you can free yourself from this prison of our minds, it will allow you to become one with the way. The way with a capital W. Okay? The way is what the Taoists are going to talk about as the be-all, end-all. You want to be in communion with the way. And the way is understanding the absurdity of human individual human perspectives, man-made perspectives and perceptions of the world. And once we can sort of have this out-of-body experience and seeing how artificial and just random and subjective 
everything that we think exists actually is, we will be happier. We will have more joy in this world and we won't be so unhappy. Okay, now before we get into Zhuangzi, and if you haven't guessed by now, Zhuangzi, um, just like the Zhou dynasty, is pronounced like a J, but it's a ZH in modern day pinyin romanization, uh, Zhuangzi. Before we get into the details, the specifics of what Zhuangzi teaches, let me talk about uh, Taoist philosophy, intellectual Taoism, prior to the 400s, prior to the 300s, in which you're going to get Zhuangzi's text preserved. Okay, um, you've probably heard of Lao Tzu before. Uh, Lao Tzu is often held up as, you know, the founder of Taoism or the original sage and whatnot. No evidence whatsoever that Lao Tzu ever existed. Lao Tzu just means the old one, the old person, master old. Okay, um, almost certainly never existed in the flesh. Okay, but regardless. The ideas that will eventually come to be associated with Taoism uh, will be attributed to a man named Lao Tzu, sort of like the, the ancient Greek epics are attributed to a man named Homer, even though it's, we have no evidence that Homer was a real person, just sort of a conglomerate of personalities and storytellers and an oral tradition that eventually coalesces around an individual name. Now, what are the early Taoists' favorite rhetorical strategies. What they do is they come up with a series of counterintuitive poetic declarations that reveal how little you know about the underlying reality of the world. Their favorite device is to say what something is not. They rarely tell you what something is. They love to tell you what something is not. Negative declarations do not limit the possibilities of the argument. They allow for infinite interpretations. And it also gives the appearance of using logic without being pinned down by that logic to the point that you can be branded a hypocrite like Molza. Their other favorite rhetorical device is to constantly suggest that being passive is ultimately superior and stronger to being aggressive. And here they actually share a lot of similarities with the Confucians. The Confucians, in case you've, you've wondered, the original Chinese characters that are used that will become attached to the school of Confucius thought is the word ru, R-U, ru, uh, which basically means the weak or to yield. Okay, it's very similar to the Taoist idea of passivity being stronger than aggressiveness. Is that by being weak or uh, giving the appearance of yielding, you ultimately will overcome those who are aggressive and strong. And one of the most common examples that the Taoists use to illustrate this point is water. They love using water to illustrate the idea that something that appears weak and unimpressive and not aggressive ultimately will win out over the long term. All right, water will erode a mountainside. It erodes rock given enough time. It takes the path of least resistance everywhere it flows. And ultimately, nothing can overcome water. That is, water is the embodiment of non-action in nature. Any of you guys familiar with Bob Ross? The guy who has the PBS special, does all of his paintings, speaks, you know, in a very comforting tone of voice. Hello, I'm Bob Ross. I'm so glad you came to join me today. Today we're going to paint some happy little trees. Sit back and enjoy your ice lemonade. That's Bob Ross. Bob Ross is the ultimate modern-day Taoist. All right, it says, think like water. We have no mistakes, just happy accidents. The perfect example of counterintuitive statements that sort of make you smile, but they also make you think, wait a second, it's just a matter of perspective. What I once thought was a mistake can be turned into a happy accident. You have this little blotch here you didn't intend to put there? 
turn it into a bird. Just a happy accident, and now it looks like it was supposed to be that way. It's all in your mind. Our mind messes with us and makes us unhappy by tying us down, chaining us to certain perspectives that ultimately will make us dissatisfied and unhappy with the world that we live in. The opening line of the classic Taoist text that precedes Zhuangzi, the classic of virtue in the way, the Tao Te Ching. You know, if you're thinking in the old Romanization system, the Tao Te Ching, <laughs> okay? Uh, the opening line, I'll read it in modern-day Chinese uh, uh, pronunciation, since I don't speak classical Chinese from 3,000 years ago. Dao ke dao, fei chang dao, ming ke ming, fei chang ming. Literally, the way that can be spoken is not the constant way. The name that can be named is not the constant name. Now, once again, here's your Bob Ross statements. Once you can pin it down, once you have a certainty that you know what something is, you're already off track. Because the only way to truly comprehend the ultimate essence of the reality of the world that we live in and free ourselves from the prisons of our minds, our subjective minds, is to realize that everything is relative, everything is subjective, and what may be good to us is bad to something else. And what is bad to us is good for something else, someone else, something else, whatever it may be. And ultimately, nature, the way, God, whatever you want to call it, doesn't care. Because the way doesn't recognize good or bad. Because it's responsible for the creation of all things that exist. And every single thing has a different perspective on what's good and what's bad, what's pretty, what's ugly, what tastes good, what tastes bad. So the way can't play favorites. The way has no subjective interest, no horse in this race. And the Taoists want you to understand that and recognize the futility of your desires, your anger, And they say, desiring, contending in this world will lead to misery and suffering. The Buddhists will find this a very attractive message. And when Buddhism comes to East Asia around, around the turn of the first millennium AD, you know, zero to 200 AD, uh, they'll borrow a lot of Taoist terminology because they'll say, hey, the Taoists have a lot of concepts that are kind of similar to some of our Buddhist concepts. And much of early Buddhism will be expressed through Taoist lexicon. And in many cases, the two religions will be almost indistinguishable from each other at the level of popular pragmatic practice. Okay, let's get to Zhuangzi. All right. Zhuangzi will flesh out the classic of virtue in the way, the Tao Te Ching, the text that is attributed to Lao Tzu. Much like Mencius will flesh out Confucius. All right. Most people, when they think of Confucius, they're actually thinking of Mencius. They just don't realize it. Most people, when they're thinking of Lao Tzu, they're actually thinking of Zhuangzi. They just don't realize it. All right, these are the guys who give, who, who, who add flesh to the spare bones of the earliest intellectual tradition. Okay? And what Zhuangzi wants to do through his text, well, through his teachings, which will eventually become a text, is I like to describe it as detached engagement. And of course, it's going to be an oxymoron. It's going to be something that contradicts itself. It has to be. All right. Only if you can engage your world in a detached sense, only then will you be in communion with the way and transcend the difficulties, the pain, the anger, the frustrations, the prison of our subjective minds. To the extent you can recognize that the multiplicity of perspectives that exist the absurdity of worldly phenomena, and be able to laugh at them, the happier and more grounded and perhaps even more successful you will be. Now he begins his teachings, his first chapter, with a chapter called Free and Easy Wandering. And the main theme here, which he's going to beat over your head over and over again, is the importance of perspective. 
He's going to say, our perspective on the world we live in changes dramatically according to time, place, and body type, whether you're born an animal, a human, a plant. And the opening example that Zhuangzi gives is about the, this kun fish. He calls it the kun fish and the pung bird. So immense. These animals are so immense that their perspective on the world is incommensurably different from small animals, small insects, like a cicada. Right? The pung bird is as big as so many worlds. The entire night sky, he fills it up. What is his perspective on the puny little earthly realm that we mortals live in? It's just a blip in his eyes. And then think of something really tiny like a cicada or a mosquito. A cicada can't even climb to the top of a tree before he falls down. Never gets the perspective of someone who looks down upon the world. What could their perspective on the world, how could it have anything in common with the pung bird? And yet both are legitimate creations. They exist. They have a consciousness. They perceive a reality. And yet the realities they perceive are so wildly different from one another. Who's to say whose perception is accurate or more objective than the other? Zhuangzi says, quote, The morning mushroom knows nothing of twilight and dawn. The summer cicada knows nothing of spring and autumn. And then he goes on to give lots of examples of different types of animals, insects, and people who have different experiences and perspectives of the world based purely on the length of their lives, the circumstances in which they find themselves, where they grow up, you know, geography, space, and then their body type. Are they tiny? Are they human size? Are they enormous? You know, a human seems enormous compared to a mouse, but compared to the pung bird, or let's say a dinosaur, <laughs> We, we are puny. And so Zhuangzi says humans only know the human perspective. We don't know what we don't know. So it is therefore narrow and arrogant to take pride in your own narrow little niche. You become the master of your specific domain. It just means that you know what you're doing in your own little tiny circle. And the moment you get transplanted into some other little circumstance or time or place, you're completely helpless. So it's, quote, therefore, a man who has enough wisdom to fill one office effectively, good conduct enough to impress one community, or virtue enough to please one ruler, has the same kind of self-pride as these little creatures. You think you're pretty good? You're only pretty good within the safe boundaries of the world that you have walled off for yourself. And as long as you can maintain those walls, you'll be pretty good. But the moment they come crashing down or you're transplanted outside of them, you'll realize how foolish it was to think so highly of yourself because you only excelled at one particular aspect of this world. He has other examples that follow in rapid succession. He gives the tale of a man of Song, a hatter from Song, who sells hats, does a pretty good business. So he says, I'll expand my business. And he travels to a neighboring place called Yue. The, 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 the hatter from Song travels to a territory called Yue. And he says, the Yue people cut their hair short and tattoo their bodies and had no use for such things. My hats are useless. If I stay in Yue, I'll be a pauper. Successful in one place, a failure in the next. He gives the tale of another man who is skilled at making a salve, an ointment for chapped hands. But he didn't really have much of a use for it, and his family business was to bleach silk. And they made a modest living, 
bleaching silk, although this man had an invention of a salve for chapped hands. And they use it among their own family members, but that's it. A traveler comes by, hears about this salve, offers to buy it from the man. The man says, sure, I'll sell it to you. We're not getting much use out of it here. It doesn't really help our business of bleaching silk. The traveler pays him for the salve and then goes off and sells it to the king of Wu to use on the hands of his soldiers who have chapped hands and it affects their prowess in war. And suddenly these troops are that much better on the battlefield because their hands are not chapped any longer. And the king of Wu is thrilled and he gives to the man who bought the salve and sold it to him, he gives him his own fief as reward because the salve was useless in one context but invaluable in another. Zhuangzi's overall point, everything is useful or useless in different contexts. And if you can't understand the use or uselessness of something and its limited utility in the big scheme of things, that is a result of your narrow perspective in life due to your body type and your circumstances. Then he has what I like to refer to as the theory of relativity 2,000 years before Einstein. Okay, this is all related to perspective, of course. I mean, relativity, perspective. Um, but he's going to treat some different case studies and examples when he wants to illustrate the theory of relativity. Okay, theory of relativity is that everything is relative to something else. All right, again, that our mind plays tricks on us. You can't trust our mind. Our mind is subjective. It interprets everything in the world in a subjective sense, but then it sends signals back to us that say this is objective. This is not subjective. And Zhuangzi says you need to realize that the way you perceive the world is subjective, even though your mind's trying to trick you into thinking that it's objective. And Zhuangzi start, he, he, he attacks the most pervasive thing in our lives. Words, language. That's what distinguishes us from the beasts, isn't it? Our ability to use language, that's also what creates the rhetorical prison that we live in. And he says that words, in order to be effective, to truly reflect the underlying reality of our world, world, they need to have a fixed meaning. But words don't have fixed meanings, and that's the problem. The meaning of words changes. Not only that, not only does the meaning of words change naturally over time, but the meanings of words can be actively manipulated by humans to serve ulterior motives, to serve different agendas. And this is what he says the problem is with the Confucians and the Mohists, the followers of Moza. All right? He just, he's not on board with either one of them. This is a third school of thought, the Confucians, the Mohists, and the Taoists. We'll also have the legalists eventually that we're going to add to this list. And Zhuangzi says that the bickering the constant debating back and forth between the Confucians and the Moists show that the words have no fixed meanings. He says, quote, what one calls right, the other calls wrong. What one calls wrong, the other calls right. Confucius says filial piety is right. Moltzes says, no, impartial carrying is right. And they manipulate the words that form our reality to argue their point. Zhuangzi says every this has a that and so on for all opposites in life. Only in a state in which this and that no longer find their opposites is called the hinge of the way. Zhuangzi wants us to understand the artificiality, the inherent artificiality, the man-made nature of words, so we can grasp, grasp the underlying substance of what words purport to describe without deceiving ourselves. Ultimately, if you're in communion with the way, you've sort of left language behind. All right? That, that is what Zhuangzi is advocating ultimately, is that language must be surpassed. We have to move beyond language, liberate ourselves from the chains, the bonds of language that tie us to a subjectivity that our mind interprets as objectivity. That's where the true pain and suffering in our minds comes from. What makes things so? Zhuangzi asks. 
Well, making them so makes them so. I love that line. Making them so makes them so. It's that simple. It's like how a road is made by people walking on it. Very simple but profound statement. There's no road there or path or trail. And if people walk on it, enough people walk on it, there will be a path eventually. Okay? We simply bring meaning and these fixed paths of words into existence because it serves our purpose to do so. And Zhuangzi is saying we impart subjective meaning on the world. We impose our subjective meaning on the world. And everything is defined in relation to us. And therefore, it follows, pain, death, anger, happiness, these are all just human abstractions that don't actually exist. The underlying reality of the way is constant. But we impose our subjectivity upon it and make ourselves unhappy in the process. We contend in the world without realizing the futility of our contention. And he follows up with probably my single most fam- uh, favorite anecdote from the entire text. Uh, the one, it's the, the uh, parable of three in the morning. All right, three in the morning. Uh, he wants to. He's going to use this anecdote to prove that all things are ultimately the same. Only our perception makes them seem otherwise. He says, "Quote: When the monkey trainer was ha- was handing out acorns, he said, "You get three in the morning and four at night." This made all the monkeys furious. Well then, he said, "You get four in the morning and three at night." The monkeys were all delighted. There was no change in the reality behind the words. And yet the monkeys responded with joy and anger. Right, he's saying, ultimately, there were still just seven acorns. In one day, seven acorns would be eaten by the monkeys. They would get seven acorns. But when they learned that they would get the smaller share in first and the larger share second, they were unhappy. So the monkey trainer manipulates their minds. And says, okay, you can have the larger share first and the smaller share second. The underlying reality did not change. There were still only seven acorns. But the trainer successfully manipulated the minds of the monkeys to be pleased rather than furious. He says this illustrates the artificiality of our human emotions. And our human emotions can be manipulated. And that's the danger is that we don't realize that our minds can be manipulated. We think we're God. We think we're God. We're gods in human form. And we are the ones imposing order and rationality on our world, when in fact we are the ones opening ourselves up to constant manipulation and deception about what the world, the way, is really like. So now Zhuangzi goes back to the idea of language. And he wants to prove to you, he wants to use logic to prove that language is ultimately subjective nonsense. So he starts off and he says, quote, There is a beginning. There is a not yet beginning to be a beginning. There is a not yet beginning to be a not yet beginning to be a beginning. There is being. There is non-being. There is a not yet beginning to be non-being. There is a not yet beginning to be a not yet beginning to be non-being. Suddenly there is non-being. But I do not know when it comes to non-being, which is really being and which is non-being. Now I have just said something, but I don't know whether what I have said has really said something or whether it hasn't said something. He's using the forms of Mohist logic to try to make an argument. He's trying to, to say, here is a Taoist argument using words and logic. But ultimately, it comes out as gibberish. He's trying to use words themselves to show you that words can have no meaning whatsoever. And that it's us that imparts subjective meaning onto words according to our own self-interested agendas. Then he continues with his theory of relativity. And he says, quote, Now let me ask you some questions. 
If a man sleeps in a damp place, his back aches and he ends up half paralyzed. But is this true of a loach? <laughs> I didn't know what a loach was. I had to look it up. It's kind of fish. If he lives in a tree, he is terrified and shakes with fright. But is this true of a monkey? Of these three creatures, then, which one knows the proper place to live? Men eat the flesh of grass-fed and grain-fed animals. Deer eat grass. Centipedes find snakes tasty. <laughs> it's a new one to me. I didn't know centipedes found snakes tasty. And hawks and falcons relish mice. Of these four, which knows how food ought to taste? Monkeys pair with monkeys. Deer go out with deer. And fish play around with fish. Men claim that Mao Chiang and Lady Li were beautiful. But if fish saw them, they would dive to the bottom of the stream. If birds saw them, they would fly away. And if deer saw them, they would break into a run. Of these four, then, which knows how to fix the standard of beauty for the world? The way I see it, the rules of benevolence and righteousness and the paths of right and wrong are all hopelessly snarled and jumbled. All right, he wants to give you multiple examples of how everything's relative to your time, place, circumstance, and ultimately your physical form. How can there be any objective standard of beauty if five different types of organisms find five different types of appearances beautiful and they're all completely different from one another? What is a good bed to sleep in if two, two different organisms find the same type of bed to yield a completely different experience? Zhuangzi puts forth the very famous parable of Lady Li. Lady Li is taken captive to another state and feared what it would be like to be taken captive among the barbarians and be made their wife. What a horrible fate. What a horrible, horrible fate. But then she gets there and later finds that her new life is so wonderful that she then wonders, how could I have ever feared this life? Because I had no idea of a reality that I had no way of grasping before it happened. We don't know what we don't know. So Zhuangzi asked, he goes on from this, from the parable of Lady Li, and he says, How do we know that the dead do not wonder why they ever longed for life? We cling so tightly to life as it's just the most incredible thing ever, and yet we suffer so much. We have so much bodily, physical pain, headaches, back pain, knee pain, this, that, the other. Life is hard. you got to make money. My kids are brats. I hate my job. I'm getting old. Life sucks for so much of life. And yet we cling to it like this, this, it's this magnificent thing. And Zhuangzi says, how do you know that you're not just the most foolish person on earth? And that the people who are already dead are looking back and going, oh my God, why did I ever cling to life? What a horrible, horrible time that was. And being dead is so much better. Here is where I'll make reference to probably the thing that most people are, have heard about. All right? You probably haven't been introduced to much of what I've already been talking about to this point, but I'm sure all of you have heard of, butter, uh, um, have heard of Duangzi's butterfly dream, the butterfly conundrum. Falls asleep and dreams of a butterfly, and then wakes up and wonders, was I Duangzi dreaming of being a butterfly, or am I a butterfly dreaming of being Duangzi? Right now, I hope you have a little more context for that famous butterfly dream. All right, it fits right in with all the other points that he's making about our perception of the world that we live in and how we, we, we know so much less than we think we do. And it's this ignorance. We deny, if, we, if, we, if we deny our ignorance of the world, we are unhappier than if we embrace our ignorance of the world. He also wants to point out how little we understand of just how the world operates. Even if I think he lived to see modern science and whatnot, he would still have the same approach in which he would say, you know, we actually, so much of how the world runs 
is completely beyond our comprehension or our conscious effort. You know, think about it. I often think about this myself. I, I, I have kids. You know, how, 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 how are babies created? I mean, when you think about it, how do they come into being? You think about the conscious effort that human beings had to make. It's laughably small. Right? I mean, you have sexual intercourse, which most people kind of want to have anyways. It's not like that was a big painful thing for most people to engage in. And then it just starts to happen. Do we sit down? Sometimes I look look at my six-year-old son and I think, what a miracle this is. This is unbelievable. Look at the, the shape of his features. Every little aspect of his personality, his face, his appearance. And I'm like, what did I do to create this? I did almost nothing. I didn't sit down and labor over blueprints of what my son was going to be like. I didn't have to monitor every single stage of his existence as he grows up to make sure he successfully gets from one stage to another. I mean, seriously, we do so little, actually. I know it feels like a lot, especially for the moms. It feels like a lot. But our kids, most of the time, just pop into existence and then grow up and become humans. And they're unbelievably complex and multifaceted. And we didn't do anything. We didn't organize all the veins and arteries in their body. It just happens. It's the heavenly impulse just going and going and going. We didn't do anything to earn our existence. We just popped into being and one day we'll pop out of it as well. We're not responsible really for any of it. There's some sort of unknowable mechanism, otherworldly unknowable mechanism that just does it, perhaps according to a greater plan. Who knows? We certainly don't know. And don't arrogate yourself, you know, don't become arrogant and think that you know, because you don't really. And Zhuangzi, looking to, you know, head off criticism of his philosophy, also talks about the futility of debate. He says, just because one member of the debate, one uh, disputant in the debate, may quote-unquote win the debate, doesn't mean he has actually proven a point of objective reality. It just means he successfully manipulated words and their reference points and deceived his audiences. And so Zhuangzi doesn't like debate. He's not going to sit here and debate you. He's going to say, only when debate is no longer possible can we be assured that something is a constant truth. If there are such things as right and wrong, good or bad, tasty or untasty, they would be so obvious that we couldn't even debate the merits of one side or another. Only if every single person on this earth and every deer, every loach, every, every bird says that sweet and sour chicken tastes good. Can we then be assured that that's an objective underlying point of reality and that sweet and sour chicken really tastes good? But the moment one single organism in this world says, nope, I don't like sweet and sour chicken, ugh, then that is no longer an underlying objective reality. If debate is possible, then you don't truly have an underlying constant of the way. So, to conclude, how does Zhuangzi uh, propose achieving what he calls, in one of his chapters, supreme happiness? He says you need to recognize that the changes, the mutations of our bodies and our lives are just another mutation in form. And that the underlying reality of our existence and the world we live in doesn't really change. Okay? And no mutation is good or bad, according to Zhuangzi. Our just the prison of our subjective mind tries to convince us that some changes are good or bad. Okay, he has this Hamlet moment in which he's looking at a skull 
and talking back and forth with the skull and saying, I prefer the utopia of death to the irritations of being alive. Is that that, you know, old age and infirmity or tragedy, horrible things that happen to people aren't really tragedies. They're only tragedies in the prison of our mind. So when Zhuangzi's wife dies, he has this, this little section in there where apparently Zhuangzi's married, we learn. Um, he doesn't grieve. In fact, he gets up and dances and sings and seems all happy. And someone else comes up to him and says, it's one thing that you don't grieve for her, but to get up and dance and sing and beat the drums, that's going too far, sir. And he says, you just don't get it. My wife has simply mutated into another form. She's gone, you know, the underlying way that infused her has not changed. She's just become something else in her outwardly appearance. So you don't need to grieve, Zhuangzi says, things like this, tragedies. And also don't overly celebrate things that you see as joyous occasions. Because they are only so because we make them so. Making them so makes them so. But we're lying to ourselves. We're engaging in active deception. And Zhuangzi says, more often than not, in the long run, that will make you unhappy rather than happy. And therefore, detached engagement is the gloss that I always like people to take away when we talk about Zhuangzi. The more you recognize the absurdity and random, heartless contingency of our man-made rhetorical prison, which exists only in our minds, the more at peace you will be. Incidentally, if you listen to the first episode of this podcast, you'll under, you, you might recall, this is how I feel about the study of history in general as well. History as therapy. Because history is the greatest mind hive that ever existed and shows us you can trace changing meanings and interpretations. You can trace the history of subjectivity over thousands of years. And the more you realize how how, 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 how many different ways of perceiving the world and how different judgments and moral values are from generation to generation, the more you actually approach Zhuangzi's state of epiphany in realizing that there are no, or at least very few, constants that only exist in our mind. And there is a sort of peace to that, I have to say. Now, now we're going to move on to a very grumpy old man who is so certain that he's right and everyone else is wrong. And at the same time, he's going to be responsible for one of the more uplifting and optimistic and positive philosophies. We are going to talk about Mencius, the man who revives and perpetuates and embodies the legacy of Confucius, the man who, when you think you're thinking about Confucius, you're actually thinking about Mencius. And as will become clear in the next episode, Mencius is the spokesman, the ancient spokesman for Nike. Just do it. Just be good. I hope you'll join me next episode for Mencius. Just do it. <laughs>